Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How do you even start a national team? Well... In 1985, you start by sending a letter. Here's Michelle Akers. I got a letter in the mail and said, Dear Michelle, you're invited to play for the U.S. Women's National Team. Come to this training camp and you might go to Italy to play. Today, being asked to join the U.S. Women's National Team for the first time would be a cause for celebration, a lifetime career goal attained. But 1985 was different. So at first I had no idea even what the national team was, but I was like, yes, right away, because I was going to be going playing soccer somewhere with a lot of people and thought it would be great fun. Playing a game she loved and a free trip to Italy? Too good to be true, right? Akers boards a plane and heads for the East Coast, where she meets up with 16 other players. They practice for three days, and then they fly to Italy. But Akers and her teammates' this-will-be-fun attitude isn't quite serious enough for the first U.S. women's coach, Mike Ryan. And said, don't you guys understand what playing for your national team means? And I was like, no. Ryan, who's Irish-born, who knows the meaning of international soccer, is asking his players to represent the United States of America. And he wants them to feel the importance of that. We weren't, I don't, I'm not sure what exactly he was looking for, but he made us stand there and sing the national anthem. While the Star-Spangled Banner certainly makes my sense of patriotism swell, I'm not quite sure that was the entirety of the problem. Nothing about the situation said, this is a big deal. For example, the uniforms. They were made for men, not for women. Here's journalist Caitlin Murray, the author of The National Team. The night before they went to Italy, the players and their trainers were up sewing and cutting and trying to make these outfits fit them properly because they were just not designed for these players. There's something unfortunately perfect about this team walking on the field in badly fitting hand-me-downs against vastly more experienced teams like Denmark, Italy, and England. It was like they were playing against little kids in a way because we were like, wait, wait a minute, that's so unfair. You're you're grabbing my shirt or you're grabbing my crotch or you're kicking me and or you, you just fouled the crap out of me and the referee's just saying play on. The U.S. performance in that first tournament was an eye-opener. Three losses, one tie, zero wins. We got our asses kicked. Underfunded, underprepared, and outplayed. It was an embarrassing beginning. 
So how did the U.S. become a favorite entering the 91 World Cup just six years later? I'm Grant Wall, and this is Sports Illustrated's podcast about the untold stories behind the most legendary moments in sports. Welcome to Throwback. Of course, the U.S. women's national team got trounced in their first tournament. That shouldn't be a surprise. Compared to the rest of the world, the U.S. was naive in the international game. But at the same time, in the late 1980s, women's soccer was actually rapidly growing in America. Caitlin Murray explains. So in 1972, a large education reform bill was passed, and it included Title IX, which was... Just 37 words. All it said was that no one could be discriminated against on the basis of gender for education programming. You've probably heard of Title IX. What you may not realize is that the wording of Title IX doesn't specifically mention sports, but the consequences in sports were enormous. If a school is offering a scholarship to men to play sports, they have to offer those to women. And suddenly, there was a massive financial incentive for women to take sports seriously and try to get a scholarship. I mean, that could be worth six figures to get a scholarship to a top university. The chance for free college was a game changer for young women nationwide. In 1974, right after Title IX was passed, there were about 100,000 girls in the entire country who were registered to play soccer with the U.S. Youth Soccer Association. Today, that number is in the multi-millions. Title IX completely changed how women looked at sports and what sports meant to girls growing up. It's hard to imagine now, but before Title IX, women playing sports like soccer was unusual. When national team player Karen Jennings Guevara played high school soccer in California, she had to deal with that stigma. It was not accepted to be a female athlete at all. And every day I'd go to school and someone would ask me about sports and I'd say, oh, I don't play sports. I denied it all the way through high school because it wasn't the cool thing to do. Despite not being cool, Thanks to Title IX, Jennings Gabera had been playing soccer most of her life, which meant that by 85, she and women like her were part of a rapidly growing talent pool. But beyond college, there was no women's national team program to hone that talent. Now, finally, there was. And U.S. soccer made changes after the disaster at the Mundialito. Those changes started at the top. They brought in a new coach. And I was incredibly young, obviously just a collegiate coach, and I had this ambition to see if I could take a shot at making the U.S. full team an opportunity for me. That's Anson Dorrance. He was the 35-year-old soccer coach at the University of North Carolina, the son of an American oil executive. Dorrance was born in India and grew up in Ethiopia, Kenya, Singapore, and Switzerland. By 86, his Tar Heels had won four of the first six women's national collegiate titles, He had wanted to double up and coach the U.S. national team from the start, but he decided his aggressive style had offended the wrong people in charge. I was very good at gathering enemies of all the different daughters of the high-powered people I had cut, and I spent most of my young, uh, you know, coaching career pulling daggers and spears out of my back, 
from people that didn't want me in the position because I had cut their daughter at some level. Despite supposedly not wanting Dorrance at first because he had offended the wrong people, U.S. soccer gave him the chance in 86, and quickly his fiery energy made a difference. When he was hired, his bosses told him the goal was just to be better than Canada. So, low expectations. But by the 86 Mundialito, he had already surpassed that goal. And all of a sudden, we discovered uh, we could probably compete with a lot of these European teams. Now, were we overwhelming and dominant? Uh, well, not really, but we were certainly competitive. A year after getting zero wins in four games, the U.S. team under Dorrance beat China, Brazil, and Japan to make it to the final. There they fell 1-0 to the host Italy. But this was in less than a year. So how did Dorrance do it? He brought a new mentality, a new playing style, and perhaps most importantly, he tapped into the Title IX talent pool. It started with a fearsome front three led by his captain, April Heinrichs. When I picked the U.S. Women's National Team, the first player I selected as a role model for how we were gonna train was Heinrichs. She was like a shark with blood in the water. Heinrichs was a freakishly competitive player from Colorado. Dorrance had persuaded her to play for the previous four years at Carolina. Anson promised my dad that if uh, I became an All-American, he'd give me a full scholarship because at no point did my dad or I think that we could afford North Carolina for four years. I became an All-American my first year, and I got four years of scholarship there. More than any other player, Heinrichs was a culture changer, first for North Carolina, and then for Dorrance's new look U.S. national team. She made no apologies about doing everything possible to gain an advantage and just win, baby. One of the biggest adjustments for a woman coming into a competitive environment is she comes in with a cultural expectation of genuflecting to everyone around her. And this was not Heinrichs. She competed from the first second of practice until the end. In practices, in games, Dorrance wanted his team to be cutthroat. Heinrichs personified that ferocity. He really gave me permission to be me. He tells stories about how you know, players would come into his office and say, hey, how, you know, how are you going to manage April? And he jokes, uh, we're going to clone her. Technical soccer skills matter to Dorrance, but just as much, he wanted his national team to be superior in its athleticism and iron-willed mentality. That required people like Heinrichs to set the tone. Here's how Julie Foudy describes her. She would basically saw your arms off and your legs off to win. If she had to. <laughs> and that's what I learned right away. I was like, holy hell, these women are intense, and I love this. Some coaches might have worried that unbridled intensity could fracture their team away from the field, but not Dorrance. He encouraged it and measured his players against each other in every training session. Ultimately, the shared agony of Dorrance's practices and fitness regimen brought his players even closer together. You can be friends off the field, but on the field, let's make each other better. If I compete my best, my hardest, if I play well today, you have to defend well. But Heinrichs wasn't the only hard ass on Dorrance's national team. Also on the front line was a towering figure with a flowing mane of hair, Michelle Akers. There's a reason why Akers was one of only two players from the 85 debacle who stayed with the national team long term once Dorrance took over. Akers set the bar. 
she was a player without a weakness. Akers might just be the toughest soccer player there ever was. Think that's hyperbole? Here's Shannon Higgins-Sorofsky recalling a collegiate game when her Carolina team played against Akers Central Florida. Michelle went up and headed a ball and basically came down with her teeth right on top of uh, Lori Henry's head and basically lost her two front teeth right in Lori's head. Uh, She just kept playing the game. Early in Dorrance's tenure, he added another force to his front three with Karen Jennings-Gabera. She was a dribbling master who would start at UC Santa Barbara, and she brought a dangerous new dimension to the U.S. attack. Karen Jennings' ability to carve up opposing defenses, she was one of the most amazing 1v1 artists uh, I've ever coached. Jennings would basically run through teams. I just remember we called her Crazy Legs because she was like a Gumby. Like her legs would turn in ways that you never knew they should go. Saudi isn't totally exaggerating here. I'm very pigeon-toed, so being pigeon-toed, dribbling is very easy for me because I'm already technically set up for it. I love to dribble. I love to have the ball. I love to run at people. And it was a little bit different playing style. And she would just chop, 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 chop through teams and, and spin them around. And I was like, oh, my God. Jennings, Akers, Heinrichs. They were three different attackers with three different playing styles. A pigeon-toed dribbler who slalomed through her opponents, a ruthless giant who sacrificed her body for the team, and the ultimate competitor of her generation. The rest of the team only reinforced their mentality. Players that set those standards, they just came into every training session, wanted to win. That's Mia Hamm, who probably shouldn't have been on Dorrance's radar in 86. Not because she wasn't talented, but because she was just barely in high school. Dorrance was thinking long-term, and he was willing to turn over every stone to find his team. So this is how Dorrance discovered one of the greatest soccer players of all time, when one day a friend called him and said, Anson, you got to come to uh, Dallas and look at this kid. And I said, well, you know, uh, what's her name? He says, "Um, Mia Hamm. And I said, how old is she? And he said, she's 14. And I just started laughing on the phone. I said, John, you mean you want me to fly to Dallas, Texas, to look at a 14-year-old for the full national team? And he said, yes. This is a story that's a classic in the annals of sports. Dorrance didn't want to be told which player was Ham. He wanted to see if he could pick her out on his own. It took me three seconds to identify her because on the kickoff, this short-haired brunette is shot out of a cannon like just a rocket ship. And I could see her just raw athleticism. I walked around the field and I said, is that Mia? And he said, yes. So Mia Hamm and other teens were on Dorrance's radar. But how did they end up on the national team? At first, Hamm, Julie Foudy, and Christine Lilly were all on the U.S. under-19 team. Through a strange set of circumstances, in the summer of 87, the under-19s and Dorrance's senior national team ended up playing in the same tournament. And the results were shocking. The youth team, I think, either won the event or tied us. The facts of that tournament have actually been hard to confirm with U.S. soccer, which goes to show how early it was in the history of the U.S. women's game. Either way, the moment became a seismic one in the history of the national team. With the under-19s doing so well in relation to the senior team, Dorrance decided to overhaul the roster 
that gave me a reason to make the decision to completely revamp the U.S. senior national team. Out went several experienced players. In came five teenagers, Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Christine Lilly, Joy Biefeld Fawcett, and Linda Hamilton. The changes obviously ruffled a few feathers, but this is Anson Dorrance. That's what he does. Here's what Heinrichs has to say about it. Those people criticizing Anson weren't qualified to make those statements, so whatever. Upsetting his critics was the easy part. Integrating kids into the national team was a whole new set of challenges, starting with getting them to understand what the national team was. Remember, they had never seen the national team on TV. There were no expectations of going pro. There hadn't even been a Women's World Cup. So, as with Akers getting that letter in the mail, it wasn't immediately clear what Dorrance was offering Foudy when he invited her to join the team. I literally was like, hell no, I don't want to go on another week of travel. And he said, did you just say no? And I was like, yeah, I've got to, I mean, I haven't been home. I've got to finish summer school. I didn't have summer school. I think I was like fibbing a little bit just to get home because I had no idea what the national team was. He's like, do you know what I'm asking you? I'm like, obviously not because I want to go home. He's like, I'm asking you to play for the United States of America. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty important. Maybe I should. Once he had them on the team, you'd think there'd be some tension between the veterans and the new young players. But it was clear the rookies belonged. Here's Heinrichs on Mia Hamm. First time I ever played with her, I'd make a run and she wouldn't play me in. Or I'd make a run and, you know, typically I would get that pass. And she wasn't passing to me. And I was like... Ah, hey. Then she shot this bomb from 40 yards out, and I'm like, okay, now I get it. There was no doubt they could play, but they still had to adjust to a tough culture. Dorrance had a plan for that, too. He assigned partnerships between older and younger players. They called them big and little sisters, and they really did seem like a family. So there was immediate respect, immediate respect on the field. And relentless teasing off the field. Of course, younger siblings can get on the nerves of older ones. Like the time on the 15-year-old Ham's first trip with the team to China in 87, when she was staying in the same hotel room as Heinrichs and other players. Bounced out of bed at six o'clock in the morning and all of the rest of us are like throwing pillows at her and shoes at her going, sit down, go back to sleep, be quiet. On other occasions, they just liked to mess with one another, the way they did on the first trip to China with Christine Lilly. There's some story I recall seeing of you bringing, like, a stuffed animal or something. Was that uh, you? I did. I, I mean, I was so homesick. Um, I mean, I was 16, so I had stuffed animal that I used to, you know, travel with. The poor stuffed animal was tortured by my teammates hanging with from, you know, athletic tape from the door or hidden somewhere else. <laughs> so we beat the shit out of each other. And then we loved each other. Dorrance's national team was coming together. He had assembled most of the core of the team, and the culture they were creating was unstoppable. The U.S. won its first games against powerhouses Norway in 87 and West Germany in 88. That was a big deal. The Norwegians and the Germans were the class of global women's soccer. Their women had been playing longer than those of most other countries, and they had distinct styles. Norway liked to play in the air, sending crosses to their rugged forwards in the box. Meanwhile, the Germans were ruthlessly efficient and direct. Because, you know, Germans. 
The Americans still lost their share of games, but as they barnstormed around the world, they bonded together as a team in remote parts of Asia and Europe, and they kept improving overall. Over the next few years, the U.S. visited China or Taiwan five times. Why China? Well, this is FIFA, so the obvious answer is the correct one, money. Henry Folk, a billionaire from Hong Kong who had been on the FIFA executive committee, promised Sepp Blatter that he and other sponsors would cover most of the costs and save FIFA money if the Women's World Cup happened in southern China. But going to China wasn't always the best deal for the U.S. women's national team. There was a culture that the team wasn't exactly used to. Here's Foudy. You know, on the train, it was a hole that when you went to the bathroom, it, you know, it went down to the tracks. And so that you could see literally the tracks underneath you. That was your toilet. I mean, it's like these kind of things that you're like, this is amazing. This is crazy. Another aspect that wasn't ideal for playing an exhausting sport was the food. Every one of the kids on the team hated the cuisine in China. Now, I absolutely loved it. For me, the Chinese food over there was wonderful. So the players lived off the food provided by the sponsors for these tournaments. Unfortunately, it isn't what you'd call a well-balanced diet. Warm Pepsi and Snickers. That's about all I ate. At the same time, the experiences could also be breathtaking, especially if you were blonde like Jennings Gabera. I would literally leave a hotel in rural China and have 200, 300 people surround me instantly because there was nobody there with blonde hair. And they would touch my hair or pull up my hair. They didn't know what to think of me. They didn't think I was real. It was awesome. It was a, it was life-changing in terms of just perspective. And, I mean, it's the gift of playing on the national team at such a young age. You see places that, you know, most people never get to see. This period of time was complicated. They were pioneers. They were the first U.S. women's national team, and they were getting to see and do things that most people would never get to do. But at the same time, they still had to play soccer. In 88, when FIFA organized a World Cup dress rehearsal in, you guessed it, China, the U.S. tied Sweden and Czechoslovakia and went out in the quarterfinals to eventual champion Norway. The travel and the competitions were special. Yet, for the adults on the team, it required significant sacrifice. Title IX had created a situation where there were women who seemed put on this earth to play a sport at the highest level. But they didn't have the institutions that would allow them to play after college. April Heinrichs joined a professional team in Italy after the 86 Mundialito, but it was a raw deal. They offered me a contract in Italian. <laughs> they didn't deliver the things like an apartment and a, you know, a car and a, a Italian language lessons. So I left. Think about the position that put her in. The U.S. national team didn't pay any salary, and the commitment made having a nine-to-five job almost impossible, as Jennings Cabrera remembers. Believe it or not, you can't work for three to four weeks and then go to Europe and play for the national team for a week and then go back to your job. It created a precarious situation for players like Shannon Higgins-Sorofsky. She was a collegiate assistant coach, and it wasn't easy. You know, I wasn't making more than seven or $8,000. And I can remember being on the, the phone with my parents and crying because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make it on my own, so to speak, and I desperately wanted to. Seven or $8,000 a year. And for playing on the national team, the only money the players received was $10 a day when they were traveling. I used to save that so that, you know, 
wicked, you know, live after you were, you know, when you came back. So to recap, the players would go on international trips representing the United States of America, making $10 a day while worrying about how they would survive afterward. At times in those days, the U.S. women's team would see U.S. soccer's boys' youth national teams receiving better travel accommodations than they did. To add insult to injury, they rarely even got stuff that looked official. When Foudy finally did get something, she was not only grateful, she was thrilled. Even all these years later. We had these windbreakers, and amazingly, they happened to be the color of our United States, because usually they were like white or purple or something random. And this one was a navy blue windbreaker with the red stripes on the sleeves, and it said USA on it. And they're like, you get to keep it. I was like, what? I get to keep this? (gasps) Are you kidding me? That's how a windbreaker made her feel. Despite the inequities, the team forged ahead, playing the sport they loved But before they could finally test themselves at the first Women's World Cup in 91, the Americans had to earn a berth at the regional qualifying tournament in Haiti. Before the opening game, someone at U.S. Soccer had an idea for the players to win over the Haitian fans. So the players walked out, tossed the white roses into the stands, and then when they turned around, the crowd started to throw the roses back at them and were kind of pelting the players with these roses. Not the start you'd want. They had to regroup and refocus, and they did. They outscored their opponents 49-0 to and just steamrolled their way through the qualification tournament. 49 to nothing. Yeah. In Haiti, we, we crushed everyone. It wasn't a challenge for us to qualify for that World Cup. And after the last game... The next day, in the Haitian newspaper, it said something along the lines of, the U.S. women's national team tried to win us over with white roses, but instead, they won us over with their style of play. By the time the U.S. headed to the 91 World Cup, their confidence was peaking, and no player had a stronger mentality than Michelle Akers. It was just like the sun was coming up tomorrow, The sky is blue, and we would win. It just was that simple. Yet there were still skeptics who doubted whether the U.S. should be favorites in China. After all, the Americans had played four global tournaments from 85 to 88, three Mundialitos and the FIFA World Cup dress rehearsal, and they hadn't won any of them. Doran still remembers a column in Soccer America that said the U.S. team was headed for trouble at the first Women's World Cup. You know, if we had any uh, thoughts of winning the World Cup, we should just lay them aside because this was different. This was going to be something completely different than we would ever experience. And the American team was never going to be prepared for this event because our culture doesn't understand how to win these events and blah, 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 blah. How ready were they? And how ready was the world for this American team? That's next time on Throwback. Throwback is written and hosted by me, Grant Wall, produced by Grant Irving. Associate producers are Kara Kornhaber and Harry Swartout. Executive producers are Scott Brody and Ben Eagle. Editing by Emma Morgenstern and Adam Durson. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Mixed by Sam Baer. 
thanks to U.S. Soccer, Cadence 13, and everyone who took time to speak with us with this episode. Throwback is a production of Sports Illustrated. For more of the best sports storytelling, visit SI.com. One more thing. If you like the show, please do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show.